And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly, And on today's show... I see people standing for the great Polly. Oh, wow. My life has changed now that I've seen. If Polly can do it, I can do it as well. He is every man. No, not this Polly. They're referring to the writer and journalist Matthew Polly. He was on the verge of middle age, badly out of shape with a beer gut to boot, when he decided to go for one last athletic hurrah and pursue a fantasy of being a mixed martial arts fighter. So in the great tradition of participatory journalists like George Plimpton, he entered the world of MMA, trained like a pro, and at the advanced age of 38, stepped into the ring himself. The result, in addition to a banged-up skull, is his recently published book, Tapped Out, an Odyssey in Mixed Martial Arts. Today I'm going to talk to Matt Polly about that odyssey, and we'll hear a blow-by-blow account of his big fight after we learn a little more about mixed martial arts. If you're not familiar with it, MMA is a bruising sport in which opponents can punch, kick, grapple, and torque each other into some very uncongenial positions. That violence has made it controversial, but it's also wildly popular. In fact, it's said to be the fastest-growing sport in the world. Here's my conversation with Matt Polly. Hey, let's start out with a real short series of questions. You're going to answer them as quickly as you can. I want you to explain the following, okay? Okay. All right, arm bar. Arm bar is basically where you lock the elbow, uh, usually between your legs, and you reach it to the hyperextension point. And if the guy doesn't tap, then you break the arm. <laughs> spinning back kick. A spinning back kick is simply um, where you do a 360-degree turn, and then you kick one leg out. Full guard. The opponent is on top of you, and you wrap your legs around him. The importance of the position is that you have control of his hips. So a strong position, you can attack from there. You can actually submit your opponent from being on your back. Ground and pound. Ground and pound is basically what wrestlers uh, specialized in because they're good at top control, at getting someone down and pinning them there. So basically, they just started hitting somebody while they were down. So you ground him, and then you pound on him until he submits. Gogo Plata. That one is a crazy one, uh, which was done to me. You're on the bottom, you wrap your leg up around his shoulder, stick it under his chin, and then pull down and choke him with the instep of your foot. Tapping out. Tapping out is to submit, to give up, essentially, or when I was a kid, when someone got on your chest, you would cry, uncle. Matt, you're batting a thousand, but I saved the hardest question for last. Okay. Chael Sonnen. Chael Sonnen. <laughs> Uh, a real estate fraud, uh, a, a steroid abuser, um, and also one of the like wackiest, funniest guys in MMA. He almost beat Anderson Silva, which was a surprise to everyone, but lost in the last minute and a half. And now he does this kind of pro wrestling performance art um, and insults Brazilians and everyone else and, and basically is the premier trash talker in the UFC. And one of the things mixed martial arts has done that wasn't really accepted in traditional martial arts is bring in the pro wrestling type trash talking. And he's, he's definitely taken it to the next level. Well, thanks for those explanations. I mean, those are just a few of the many um, important concepts in mixed martial arts. And I want to leave behind this sort of introductory uh, style pretty quickly and get into the detail. But before we do, let's just define MMA, mixed martial arts, and let's distinguish it from a term that people have come to see as totally synonymous, the UFC. Yeah, people use them synonymously, and it makes sense, because the UFC was the first promotion. So in many ways, it would be like um, Don King promotions. Uh, someone who puts on fights is a promoter. If they have a company that does it, it's their promotion. Mixed martial arts is actually the name that became for the sport that the UFC was putting on. At the time, they called it No Holds Barred because they really didn't have a name for what it was. And the interesting thing is the ancestral form dates back to the Greek Olympics, where it was called pancration, which means all powers. 
And it was very similar. You could kick, you could punch, you could wrestle. And that's how mixed martial arts started in Brazil. They call it Valley Tudo, anything goes, in Portuguese. They brought it over to the U.S. They started this company, which they called the Ultimate Fighting Championship, to put on a Valley Tudo event. And then eventually it became mixed martial arts because what happened was artists from various styles came in and then they learned that they needed to learn something from somebody else's style. So they cross-trained, and so the martial arts, as we knew them before, became mixed. And that's the name that stuck for the sport. And as you point out in in your book, uh, it sort of grows out of that little boy fantasy of pitting the best karate, you know, fighter against the best kung fu fighter against the best boxer against the best wrestler and so on and uh and seeing what works best. Exactly. And I remember being 12 or 13 years old and we would have these debates. <laughs> Very seriously, we're like and somebody would take the position like Bruce Lee could totally kick the Hulk Hogan's ass and uh, and we would go on and on and and we were we would, you know, bet money on this fantasy. Um, and literally, it was the 13-year-old boy's fantasy argument that many of us had as kids um, that we could never see because somebody would be like, karate's better than boxing. Uh, could Muhammad Ali beat Bruce Lee? Uh, and so in many ways, that was their concept. It was established, though, by the Gracie family, and they were interested in marketing their style of martial arts, uh, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, or what we now call Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and they came over to the States, and it was this ground fighting, which to Americans didn't seem like real fighting. It seemed odd and a little homoerotic. And so they couldn't get that many students. And so they envisioned doing what they'd done in Brazil, the Valley Tudo matches, as a way to promote their style and get more students and more fans. Um, and so the UFC, in many ways, UFC 1 was the Gracie's marketing. <laughs> it was like an infomercial. Uh, for Gracie marketing, although uh, they didn't know what the outcome could be, so it was actually a, a it was a true sports event. Well, you have this really huge clan from Brazil, the Gracies. I don't know how many of them there are, but there are dozens and dozens of them. Yes, who you know sort of took Japanese jiu-jitsu and, and created a whole new style of fighting from it that was really successful against other kinds of fighters, even fighters who were much larger than the, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners. So it seemed kind of like almost a magical art at first when it, it showed up on the scene. Yeah, it absolutely did. And that's, that's of course, every skinny 13-year-old boy's fantasy <laughs> of martial arts. Is, that was mine, is that there was some way you could learn the proper technique or you would have this secret magical weapon that you could beat the big bully who was just bigger and stronger and meaner and pushed you into the locker and stole your uh, lunch money. Not that that happened to me many, many times. But um, So martial arts was the way that the little guy, um, and everybody loved Bruce Lee because he was small, but he was fast and he was strong. Um, and so that was the fantasy of martial arts, which Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu actually did. If you didn't know what you were doing on the ground, which most Western and even East Asian martial arts like karate and taekwondo, they had no ground grappling component. It was all stand-up striking. And, and so they essentially found um, a gap in the game, a hole in everybody's game because of the rules of boxing or taekwondo that you weren't allowed to fight on the ground. And they exploited it. And so at first, when no one knew what they were doing, they just they did. They kicked everybody's butt. Gracie was, you know, Hoist Gracie was like 160 pounds soaking wet was beating guys that were 300, 350 pounds and choking them out. And when I first watched it, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> he would kill me. I don't know how to fight on the ground. Uh, so everyone realized you, if you wanted to be a complete uh, martial artist, you had to learn jiu-jitsu as part of your component. And so that's what they did. Now, the problem is if you exploit a weakness once, you get away with it. Twice, you might get away with it. But by the third time, people figure out what you're doing. Um, then you don't get away with it. And that's part of the reason why we don't see Gracie's as the champions of mixed martial arts anymore, because they were almost too good at selling their own art. Mm, now everybody learns it and learns how to defend against it. Exactly. E- except Chael Sonnen. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, just for those who, who, who don't know exactly what we're talking about, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a kind of grappling, um, and it uses some of the moves that you described in our little quiz at the beginning, the arm mm-hmm. bar, uh, the go-go plata, various kinds of chokes, and really painful and potentially injurious 
holds that can dislocate limbs and do all kinds of terrible things unless you tap out, which is the smart thing to do when you're, right. when you're caught. <laughs> but uh, for a while you had, um, you know, as you say, uh, the Gracies uh, using those, those techniques to defeat big boxers and big strikers of various kinds uh, and uh, drag them to the ground and uh, lock them in, in some submission hold and, and end the fight there. Um, let's talk about your, your youth, though. You've alluded to it a couple times now. Um, when did you start getting into martial arts? Well, when I got to college, I, I mean, I, I, I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, so there wasn't many opportunities for it. So we were basically like the kids who watch YouTube today. We watched uh, <laughs> VHS copies of Enter the Dragon, and we jumped around and pretended we were Bruce Lee or Kung Fu with David Carradine where he, he was a Shaolin monk. And so I got to college, and there were more opportunities, and I studied various things, Taekwondo, Aikido. But I really got into Chinese Kung Fu. This was back in 91, which was way before the UFC, or just before the UFC. And I started studying the Chinese language, and then I decided to drop out of college, uh, much to the chagrin of my parents. And I went to China and studied Kung Fu with the Shaolin monks, who started Kung Fu and are considered sort of the originators of uh, East Asian martial arts. So that's how I got into it. And Kung Fu is, as we know, is a stand-up striking sport. And so I did some of their kickboxing, which is a modern sports version, Sanda or Sancho. And so I learned striking, kickboxing, punches, kicks, some knees and elbows. Um, but they never did any ground fighting. So when I came back, I I was out of the country. I came back and I started watching these UFC videos, and I realized, oh, I've got to learn that too. <laughs> but you got pretty good. I mean, um, you mentioned in your book that you actually fought a, a Chinese national champion. I did. I, I fought in a tournament, and I mean, not to brag, but I'd only trained for nine months at this point. Really? I mean, the thing was, I was so long and skinny. He, he just had never seen somebody who was that kind of gangly. Um, so I gave him a real run for his money, and in the, in the inter I, I didn't win the final match against him, but I did pretty well and took a silver at this international tournament where 26 other countries competed. So that turned out to be uh, quite remarkable. So you were kind uh, of a natural, I guess. It came. I really like kickboxing. It made sense to me. This like because I was long and thin, the style fit uh, sort of my body type and temperament, which was not to get too close and kind of drop bombs on their moms from a distance. Uh -huh, so uh -huh. I had the B-52 approach to striking. Uh-huh. Wow. And, and were there any similarities between the, the real Shaolin Temple and the one that uh, we learned about as kids in the, the TV series Kung Fu? <laughs> None. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 when I went there, I totally expected that's what it would be, that you would go there and you would stand at the gates and they wouldn't let you in, and then you'd wait there. I, I packed a sleeping bag because I figured they'd let make me lie out by the gates for months and months. Um, and then eventually they let you in, and he pours tea, and you say, no, master, you drink first, and you understand politeness, he lets you in. That's what I thought the Shaolin Temple would be. When I got there, it was a tourist trap. Um, and basically, if you had the money, they would let you train with the monks. But the amazing thing was, despite it being a tourist trap, the monks themselves were extremely dedicated and devoted to their art form and very passionate about it. And so... I, I kind of ignored the rest of the, the tchotchkes being sold and every the kung fu world aspect and just focused on the training and the monks who lived there. So, so you, it was a, a great experience. So you had dropped out of, out of Princeton to go there, but uh, you went back to school, true? I did, yes. I, I feel bad when it's, I've had some mothers come up to me since I wrote the book and was like, you, my son wants to drop out. Don't tell him to do that. <laughs> so I, I have to use that as a caveat. I did go back and I finished. I got my degree. Uh, and then won a Rhodes Scholarship, and so went to Oxford and did a, a, a couple master's degrees. So I do think education is important. Did did your um, year or so abroad studying Kung Fu help you get that Rhodes Scholarship? Uh, yeah, absolutely. They, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, one of the aspects of the road, there were there are four dimensions, academic, uh, leadership, um, social service, and athletics. Cecil Rhodes, who founded it, sort of wanted to shape he had this idea of what would be political leaders, and they would have these attributes, so they would be leaders and help society, be academic, but also be athletes. And so having studied Kung Fu and kickboxing with the Shaolin monks made me somewhat unique amongst the, the participants. So, so cut to uh, more than 10 years later, right? Um, 
you're now in your late 30s and you're a writer mm-hmm. um, and you think about this new adventure uh, becoming an MMA fighter or at least experiencing what it's like to be one. Mm-hmm. Um, you think Cecil Rhodes would be disappointed in you? I'm not sure I would care what Cecil thought because he was a mean guy, but he was one of those people who hurt a lot of people, made a lot of money in the process, and tried to redeem himself at the end by giving it away. Um, but yes, it, it's interesting. Uh, I think what what I like is the um, the idea of the Rhodes Scholarship was to fight the world's fight, um, and <laughs> I guess I got the the message wrong. I just fight the world. Uh, so. Uh, it's interesting. One of my uh, fellow students uh, with the Rhodes is Rachel Maddow, who's on MSNBC. Oh, that's so. right. Yeah, yeah. She went to Oxford also. Exactly. So we, we were the same year, and I think she's doing more of what Cecil would have liked, <laughs> uh, taking on the political stuff. But uh, I do enjoy the adventure of exploring these different worlds. It's like being an anthropologist, uh, and you get to see these subcultures and what they work like. Well, you know, it's obviously... Participatory journalism is an old gimmick, and we all mm-hmm. identify it, especially in sports, with George Plimpton. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, you know, it was it was clever of you to do it. But um, did you just want to get a good book out of this, or was part of you a little kid wanting to be uh, one of these mixed martial art guys? I, I, there are two elements to it beyond that. I mean, uh, Plimpton definitely made it famous, uh, but it's uh, two things. One, I I think it's one of the best ways to understand something. Right, it's it's the old maxim: walk in somebody else's shoes for a mile, and then you have an idea of what their life is like. Um, and when you write a book about people and you don't actually do what they do, it's very hard to understand why they do what they do. Uh, the second thing was because I'd had such a long interest in uh, martial arts, uh, I was amazed that this had gone mainstream. And one of the things that kind of provoked the book was I was talking to some twenty-five, twenty-six-year-old frat boys who were going on and on about Chuck Liddell and MMA and Quentin Jackson, people I knew who they were, but I didn't know why the average frat boy did. And so what amazed me was something that it was like the indie band that I'd seen in a garage was suddenly playing, you know, Shea Stadium. Mm -hmm. And so I was fascinated about what happens to martial arts when they go mainstream, what gets lost, um, what, what gets added. Uh, and what this world really was about. So just from an intellectual kind of journalistic standpoint, I was interested there. But on a personal level, um, I'd given up kind of martial arts with the everyday toils of life as you get older um, and gotten terribly out of shape. I was like 250 pounds and feeling bad about myself. And for me, it was a way to get back to or one last shot at glory, to try to see if I still had, had it in me to go through this kind of training. Uh, and I think like a lot of ex-athletes, we all believe we've got one more game in us uh, if we only had the opportunity. And so for me, this was, this was the golden opportunity to get back into shape and to, you know, get back in the ring and see if I still had it. Well, you know, Plimpton tried his hand at being like a, a baseball pitcher and a football mm-hmm. quarterback, but he also did a couple rounds in the ring, I believe, with Archie Moore, the great light heavyweight boxer, got his nose bloodied. Mm-hmm. But he was truly, uh, I think, an inept boxer. On the other hand, you, with your background in kickboxing, you're, you're almost a ringer here. You're not really a beginner at all. <laughs> That's true. I, I was, yeah, no, uh, I remember the story with Plimpton where one of his friends uh, had told Archie Moore's trainer that Plimpton was really good and was going to try to hurt Archie Moore. So Archie Moore went in there and broke his nose, which is not the kind of friend you really want to have. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. Uh, but... No, I, uh, the background gave me the opportunity to take it, um, to start at a higher level. Um, one of the things with mixed martial arts is people think of it as a bunch of bar brawlers, just a bunch of thugs, uh, but they're incredibly skilled uh, athletes. And so if I didn't have some background, I wouldn't have had any chance to learn in such a short period of time. But I, de- I definitely was working against the grain being out of shape and 36 years old. Um, trying to restart the career. But definitely it was useful to have some background because <laughs> it was bad enough as it was. I can't imagine if I'd started as a pure white belt. You certainly never would have been able to train with the people you got to train with. Exactly. Um, so the writer uh, gimmick, as I called it, got you a real head start. It got you into some, some of the top gyms in the world, studying it, with it, some of the best people in the world. It did. 
I mean, uh, I wanted to make sure when I started that I let people know what I was doing so that they, you know, you don't want to trick them and have them reveal stuff to you and not know that you're writing a book. Yeah. Uh, um, but one of the things, it definitely helped me enter. Um, it was a good introduction that I'd written American Shaolin, the book about the time I was in China and that it had been a bestseller. Uh, but the great thing about mixed martial arts at this point is it's still young enough that a lot of people can train with the best people. Um, John Donaher, who's at the Henzo Academy, trains, you know, random people off the street who aren't, you know, trying to write a book. You know, you just have to have the 150 bucks an hour that he charges. <laughs> uh, and Phil Nurse has private students. And even, you know, Randy Couture will take a private student. Of course, he's $1,000 an hour, so right. you, have to be, you have to be pretty serious. So I think one of the things I liked about it is, in many ways, uh, MMA is at the stage that the NFL was when George Plimpton was writing about it. It was just evolving as a young sport into a more mature mainstream sport, and that meant there was a great deal more access. You know, the athletes aren't hidden behind you know, publicists and marketing people and agents and whatever, they're out there in the open trying to get fans. More like country music, really, than, uh, you know, pop idols. And so uh, I really loved the fact that the sport was young enough still, um, but just emerging that I could, um, I could spend time with the world's best trainers and get to meet the best fighters and, you know, have conversations with them. You mentioned a couple of the people you trained with. There was, you trained at the Henzo Gracie Academy. That's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu dojo in new york um you trained with uh john donaher and then you uh trained in kickboxing with phil nurse who's a legend uh and then you went to the extreme couture gym in las vegas and couture does not refer to high fashion it refers to uh another legend <laughs> another legend of mma randy couture um who, who you got to know a little bit while you were there um you told them you were a writer, uh, but did you tell them? Did you tell them you're a Rhodes Scholar, that you're from Princeton? Um, did you worry that they might think you were some smart elite dude and maybe want to beat you down a little bit for that? <laughs> no, I definitely did. <laughs> I, I, I did worry that people would think uh, that I was a kind of intellectual snob who didn't know anything. So I, right. I, I, when I would go to the teachers, I would hand them a copy of my previous book so that they knew my background, but also <clears throat> knew the kind of writing I would do, um, that it would be first person and participatory, but it would involve, you know, kind of a casual, humorous take on things. That way, they would agree that it was okay with them, it was full disclosure, uh, and they generally they read the book and thought it was funny and, and wanted to participate. So, uh, I, you know, you do worry, especially some of the mixed martial arts gyms uh, can be a little rough and tumble, so you worry you're the New York a feet Manhattan writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that uh, you're this creature of privilege who gets to waltz in, get lessons, write a book, get money. Well, these some of these guys work their tails off and and break bones, you know, getting to where they've gotten. So, I would think you might bring out a little animosity in them. Yeah, I was worried about that too. Um, but I think in general, uh, a lot of it has to do with approach. And since I'm quite in awe of what they've achieved and accomplished in their skills at athletes, I don't think anyone felt like I was coming off as better than they were. And I think that served me in good stead. Uh, and, and also that I was willing, I think a lot of them appreciated that unlike a lot of other writers who come in, sit down, do an interview, and walk out, I was willing to be there day after day. Um, that I was willing to put the work in, even though I was clearly out of shape and less good than they were. Mm -hmm. and, and so one of the great examples was Ryan Couture, Randy's son, who's now a pro fighter, um, at that time, he was he was about on his second year of amateur training, and so we we sparred together a lot. And I would come in, and he'd knock the crap out of me. <laughs> and then I'd come in the next day, and he'd knock the crap out of me. And you know, over time, he respected the fact that while I would never be a great pro fighter, um, I was willing to come in there to do the work. And so uh, I think they appreciated that a lot. To to fighters, I think uh, MMA fighters, if you're willing to get in the ring. And you're willing to, you're courageous enough to take that step and put it on the line and do what they do. They give you a great deal more respect than they do um, writers and journalists and bloggers who, you know, observe what they've done and then criticize them afterwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so in many ways, they do appreciate the walking and their footsteps. 
But at first, I, I was very cautious because you don't want to come in and have people think that you, you're looking down on them. Yeah, <laughs> not those guys. No, <laughs> you don't want to roll. With, you don't want to roll with a guy who thinks you're better than him, because then he'll he'll show you that you're not. Uh, let's talk about violence, because that's what, probably what comes to mind to uh, a lot of people when they think about uh, mixed martial arts or the UFC, mm-hmm. the Ultimate Fighting Championships, or what they often call cage fighting, which makes it really sound savage. Yeah. Um, it does, I think, probably to, to the uninitiated, or maybe even to the initiated, look pretty savage sometimes right. and it was really controversial for quite a while maybe it still is but it was you know uh, it was banned in some states um john mccain uh senator john mccain called it human cockfighting i thought i'd play a little clip from this uh show from 2006 bill o'reilly show where he was talking to a well-known uh mixed martial arts fighter let's just listen to a clip of that here's the point here's the point this is a brutal business everybody knows it you're selling brutality people come to see it because they want to see violence and there's no question about that is it is it why is it worth it to you to do it is it money it's well you know first of all bill i used to be a high school teacher and i gave up a career as a teacher to pursue pursue something that i had as a dream as a child and that is to, to be a professional athlete you can look at athletes across the board in, in any kind of sport that you want to uh... you can look at head trauma injuries with soccer doing head balls you can look at the uh, the number of knee surgeries that professional football players have and stuff like that and i'm a thirty one year old athlete and if i take my health into consideration and how i feel on a daily basis i feel great when i wake up in the morning i don't have to take a half a dozen vicodins just to get out of bed All right, but and uh... you know but do you uh, well, do it? Do you do it for money? I mean, because there's not that money much money in it, is there? How much money do you make a year? I make way more money than I would have made as a teacher. Well, okay. And to say that I'm to say that I'm not money motivated would would be a lie. But uh, that's not the only reason why I do this. I can I can wake up in the morning and teach mathematics and grade papers all day long, or I can come into the gym and work out. And this is something I'd be doing anyway. Right. I have a passion for combat. So that was uh, from the O'Reilly Factor, Bill O'Reilly's show on Fox News um, from 2006, talking about uh, mixed martial arts and uh, the move afoot at that time to to restrict the spread of this quote-unquote brutal sport. He was talking to Rich Franklin there, um, who uh, actually just a few months later would have his face completely obliterated. Oh, I'm, I'm exaggerating just a little bit. Sure. By by the knees of Anderson Silva in a middleweight bout that was was pretty brutal to watch. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Because you know anybody who hasn't seen MMA, uh, we can explain that it can amount to to something similar to a wrestling match. Uh, yeah. And a person can be outpointed simply by being you know taken to the ground and held down. But on the other hand, it can be a, a slugfest in which people are hit even when they're down. Sure. Um, or, or you can have submission uh, holds that break limbs, so it can be pretty nasty. Uh, absolutely, and I think uh, there's two points. One, there's no way to say there isn't violence to the sport. That's the point. You're trying to beat someone. Um, but I don't think the violence is the point of the sport. It's the means to the end. The end is to win your match, and if you can do that by holding someone down and, and pinning them and gaining points to the judges, or through a choke, which... Um, isn't very brutal. Like it looks bad, but you tap out nothing. You, afterwards, there's no effect. Um, or you know, you put a knee to someone's face. So there are real risks involved. But my my feeling always was that um, we all know what the risks are, and we all are willing to take those chances in order to compete in the sport as athletes. Well, Rich Franklin, who we just heard, after he had you know his facial bones smashed. By, by knees, came back, fought again against Anderson Silva, and was badly beaten. Came back, is still fighting. Last time I saw him, he was in a fight where he'd actually broken his arm and was continuing to fight and won the fight. Right. Um, against Chuck Liddell. Um, so it is amazing. Some of these guys take unbelievable amounts of punishment, but really love what they do. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the crucial things to understand is they they love the excitement, partly the thrill but also just competing on such a high level. In many ways, uh, the few times I've been in the ring, it's an honor that someone would come in there and try to beat you because you get to show what you've got, what you've trained, um, and how hard you've worked to try to master these things. And it, the, the impact isn't so much that you want to hurt the other guy, you just want to beat him in a fight and show that you're better. And hurting is sort of the, the means to the end of it. 
And Rich Franklin, he did. He got his nose broken. He had an orbital bone broken. But once it was fixed, he's still going to be the same guy he was before. I think the real issue that's come up recently with the NFL and hockey um, and all the reports is this issue of concussions mm-hmm. and the long-term brain damage. Because if you get your knee, you get knee surgery, you get a fix, it's all right. You hobble a little bit, but no one cares. But brain damage is, as we saw with Muhammad Ali, that's life-destroying. Uh, and the one thing I think is absolutely certain is that MMA is much safer than boxing. You think so? I mean, we don't yet know what an old MMA fighter is like because it's too new a sport. It is. Do we that know that some of the sluggers who've taken a lot of punches won't be slurring their words and shuffling around by the time they're 60 years old? I, I think you're absolutely right. We, we're, we're starting to see Gary Goodrich, um, uh, Ken Shamrock is getting to the age where you can see a little bit of the slurring and the speech. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things uh, MMA has to be careful of, of letting fighters go on past the point where they should be forced to retire. Uh, and that's one of the hard things, because if, if Dana White at the UFC says you have to retire, they can always go fight for a less honorable league that just wants to use their name. Uh, it, so it's impossible in many ways to force people to do something they don't want to do. But I do think um, the fact is that MMA, because there are kicks, because there's grappling, there are less head strikes. And so just doing the math, it's less likely that you will suffer as much head trauma over a career as you would in boxing. Okay, okay. I know this is the easy defense. It's not as bad as sure. some other sports, right? Sure. But, but realistically, there is a little tension in the MMA world uh, between people who are content to win on points, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and not necessarily do you know, serious damage to their opponent, because right. it is like a sport in that regard. There's a way of scoring it. Versus the people who really lust for a brutal finish, <laughs> a person knocked out, uh, stone yeah. cold on the canvas. And, in yeah. fact, some of the fighters, like the great Georges St-Pierre, one of the greatest of all, um, mm-hmm. who, who are content to outpoint their opponents sometimes, are criticized for not going in and destroying the other person completely. You're absolutely right, and I don't want to take anything away from the risks that athletes go into or the fact that there, it isn't a pre- perfectly safe sport. It isn't golf and it isn't tennis. Uh, it's, it's guys who get out there and they punch each other and they kick each other in the head and they take each other and slam each other down and twist on their limbs. It is tough, and there is a, a brutal element to it. It's just not all about brutality. And I think that's one of the things that I want to make clear to people who just look at it and see just violence. That isn't just violence. There's tactics, there's strategy, there's thoughtfulness. Um, there's athletes who respect each other who don't want to injure the person, but they wouldn't mind putting a little hurt on them. Well, this is one of the fascinating things uh, about combat sports and about mixed martial arts is that um, while it is in deadly earnest, I mean, some of the, the, the punches that they lay on each other are really powerful, the kicks, uh, the submissions, etc. On the other hand, um, some of these guys really like each other. Um, mm. They're really, you know, friendly to each other after the fight. Not always, not always. Um, and some of them, like Georges St-Pierre and um, another famous one, Frank Shamrock, I once heard say he doesn't actually like to hurt people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, how about you? You like hurting people? You know, uh, it's funny. Like, I think every fighter has a little bit of a mixed feeling. When you're pumped up and you're in the ring, um, there is, it, there's a real primal joy when you connect with your opponent. When you hit them and you see that it, it, it jolts through your arm, you can feel it through your body. Um, and so there is something very primal about the sport. That's part of its appeal to people who participate and also to fans. I, I guess the way I would say it is what it is is contained violence. And that's the distinction, that two men or women agree that within this context, within the rings, the sacred ring, you're allowed to go at it and do things you're not allowed to do. But once you step out, um, we're just friends. We, we like each other or we don't. We talk. Um, and so in many ways, I think it's a ritualized form where you, you contain the violence within this octagon, as it were, and you don't let it outwards. And so when you meet GSP, he's the nicest guy in the world. Like, he's almost too nice. Uh, you, you talk to him, you think, you can't be as nice as you are. Uh, and you can't imagine if someone pushed him outside, he wouldn't do anything. He would just kind of walk away. 
But, yeah, when he gets in the ring, he puts the beat down on a lot of people. And when he doesn't, he gets criticized for it. Um, so I, I, I do really think that most of these athletes, they get all of their aggression out, or not all of it, but a good portion of their aggression out inside the ring. And afterwards, they're, they hang out with each other. They have a beer. They joke about, oh, yeah, you really got me good. Um, I didn't see that, that hook coming. Um, now, um, Georges St. Pierre, um, the fighter we've been talking about a lot, uh, a real gentleman, uh, a very classy guy who said that he doesn't really like to hurt people. You say in your book he doesn't really love fighting, though he's mm. one of the best at it. But he does have something in common with, I think, a, a number of the fighters, which is that he was bullied as a kid. I yeah. mean, do you think that's a common denominator, that, that, that there's grievances or uh, old hurts that are being worked out in one way or another? I think that's uh, very common with people who got into the sport be- before it became famous. Um, because when they, you started, there was no money in it and there was no fame in it. So there had to be some other reason that propelled people. Uh, and so I think there were two types. There were the bulliers, the, <laughs> who like, just like to hurt people, and the bullied who felt like they needed to prove something. Um, and I often caught, it's like, um, you know, the Chuck Liddells of the world are the bouncers who keep order. <laughs> um, and the Tank Abbots are the guys at the bar who, who got to get thrown out of the thing because they just like a good fight. And there are a certain percentage of males who just like to fight. It's a thrill. Um, your adrenaline pumps, you get all charged, um, the endorphins fire, and you knock someone around, and you, you're tough. Um, and fighting is it's very primal. It is a thrill. Uh, but I think for the bullied, the guys like GSP, and also that's why I identified with him. I was a kid who was picked on. And so the martial arts for me were a way to, you know, be stronger and have confidence that I didn't have when I was young. Well, well uh, not only you and, and George St. Pierre, but also Mike Tyson and a lot of other, a number of the other very best fighters of all time uh, were the ones who were bullied, not the ones doing the bullying when they were young. I, I, that's absolutely true. I think um, the, prob- the difference is the bullies uh, don't like to get hurt. They just like to hurt. Um, and the bullied actually knows <laughs> what it's like to get hurt, so they're not afraid of that. Um, and so, in a way, they can take it to the next level. But it's it's very much a common denominator amongst combat athletes that it, somewhere at the point they were skinny, they were picked on, they weren't the popular kid, and they took up martial arts in a way to you know gain confidence that they didn't have before. The other um, common factor was um, absentee fathers, uh-huh. or or abusive fathers in some cases. And so in many ways, it was a way to prove they were men. Um, in those situations, they had a violent dad, and so they learned how to get tough in order to protect their mother, or they didn't have a dad around, and so fighting it when you're 13 is a way to show that you're a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about the yeah. women? You, you've talked to some of the women fighters as well, and MMA does include women. Uh, yes. You've spoken to probably the best-known uh, woman uh, mixed martial artist, Gina Carano, Who's now starring in a movie by Steven Soderbergh, uh, Haywire? Um, what what motivates them? Similar things or different things? I think it's slightly different. Uh, some it's uh, uh, I I knew some it was like, uh, oftentimes you hear brothers, <laughs> like they, they got into it because they wanted to keep up with their brothers who would wrestle with them and toss them around. Uh, Gina Carano was interesting. She got into it. Uh, boyfriend, a boyfriend was really into uh, Muay Thai kickboxing. She went to the gym. And the, the master, Master Toddy, said, uh, you chubby, um, you should take classes. And I think in many ways she got into it as self-improvement. Um, she started taking uh, Muay Thai to have some connection with her boyfriend, which a lot of you know high school girlfriends do, uh, and then got into better shape, started to look better, and turned out she just happened to love the sport. Um, and a lot, there are quite a number of... Uh, female uh, MMA fighters who came from rough backgrounds like the male fighters. Uh, Gina came from a very wealthy family, so it wasn't about that. But uh, a lot of them came from, maybe not abusive is the right term, because I don't like that characterization, but, uh, you know, the wrong side of the tracks kind of thing, where they, they scrapped in the in, in the schools and had similar experiences to the boys, where, you know, girls would fight, and, and that's why they wanted to learn how to do it better. There is... Um something that's quite different from boxing, I think. Um, you know, traditionally boxing was the sport of poor kids, you know, mm-hmm. from inner city gyms, places like that. MMA, uh, some some are from poor backgrounds, but a lot of them come from middle class backgrounds or at least backgrounds where they had an opportunity to get trained um, 
in, you know, these elite combat sports, which are not, you know, that training's not available to the really mm-hmm. poor. Um, and some come from really well-off backgrounds, as you say, Gina Carano. Um, others came through college collegiate wrestling, so they at least got into college and, and had that. Right. So it really is kind of demographically different from traditional boxing. It's very different than uh, boxing as we know it now. I mean, there was a period where boxing was also done by Teddy Roosevelt, and it was considered, That's true. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, considered something that uh, young men at Harvard ought to learn how to do. They ought to learn how to fight. But generally, it's, uh, it's an urban sport. Um, you can put a ring up anywhere. And so whichever group was the first immigrant group that came in, there were the Irish were the first, and then the Italians, and then the Jews, and then uh, blacks, and then... Uh, Hispanics. Uh, so basically, if you were on the down and out in America, if this was your first mm-hmm, generation mm-hmm, here, mm-hmm. Uh, or you'd been a former slave, uh, boxing was the way you could get ahead um, in, in an environment where you didn't have anything. All you needed was a ring and some gloves. But I think it's absolutely true that that's, in part, I think part of the appeal of um, mixed martial arts when it first started was that it's a more rural, it's more red state because it's so many wrestlers went through. So it's more white, more rural than boxing was at the time, which was more black and Hispanic, more black and brown. Uh, and you see, because the collegiate athletes had to get into college, it's a better educated group of uh, athletes than you get with boxers who often don't get through high school. So there is a real distinction. I think one of the other interesting things, just looking back at the Greeks, is that wrestling was considered the gentlemanly one. That's what Plato did. <laughs> All right. Boxers were the brutal one because that they just punched each other in the head. And uh, mixed martial arts, pancreation, was the most uh, well-paid version because it did both. And the fans loved it the most. Um, and so in many ways, I think you see this. Wrestling, because there's no striking to the head uh, or grappling, BJJ is very popular with you know people who are intellectuals, um, the kind of Norman Mailers of the world today. Uh, is very popular. Boxing, because it's about getting hit in the head, tends to be a more urban, poor sport. A lot of celebrities taken up boxing, though. I mean, amateur boxing, just uh, recreational boxing. Uh, No, no, I'll give you that, but they they do it recreationally. That's right, that's right. (laughs) They don't take that many punches to the head before they go, this is is not what I want to do. Yeah. Um, But I do think uh, David Mamet was the example I was looking for. He strikes me as the kind of modern-day Norman Mailer type who's very into, did a whole movie, Red Belt, on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And, and by the way, for the record, it sucked. I know, it was awful. (laughs) (laughs) It was was the worst thing I've ever seen. Uh, Pretentious nonsense is what it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But uh, he's into it. Um, Who's the director who directed Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels? Uh, Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie. Madonna's ex. Madonna's ex, he studies uh, with John Donner occasionally when he's in New York, and he turned in the Sherlock Holmes movie, basically Sherlock Holmes. Is oh, like a, yeah, yeah. He's an MMA fighter, if you... <laughs> Robert Downey Jr., yes, I know, I know. Uh, it's insane. So you can see it, uh, the popularity is kind of infecting the whole culture, so you see people doing rear naked chokes in the uh, 19th century Victorian England. Uh, but I do think that... Uh, the less striking there is to a combat sport, the more likely it appeals to a higher or, or more well-educated demographic. Yes, I mean, striking is definitely thought of as, as pretty savage. I mean, there's blood drawn, uh, mm-hmm. there's people knocked out. But uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I mean, can cause serious damage uh, and, and permanent damage if, you know, if a limb is seriously broken or dislocated. Absolutely. The, uh, I mean, the whole thing is you need to tap out in time and you need to roll with people you trust to... <laughs> not go that extra inch or fraction of an inch but it is it, that what i really liked about brazilian jiu-jitsu is it gives the gives you a choice like when you get a punch in the head you don't have a choice yeah, like when you're about to be your arm hyperextended you have the choice to tap out or not presuming that your opponent isn't a cruel guy yeah just wants to hurt you yeah 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 now, uh, mixed martial arts is is said to be the fastest growing sport in the world. I don't know what that is based on, whether there's really <laughs> such a statistic, but right. it is getting incredibly popular. And yet it still has kind of an outlaw image. I think uh, it breaks down along gem- generations. Uh, anybody under, say, maybe 40 or 45 
tends to think of it as semi-legit. Uh, people who are older think of it as, um, you know, as again this gladiatorial kind of um, lowbrow stuff. Right. I, it's fascinating to me because I, I kept seeing the same thing over and over again because I'm right at that cusp, that count-off mark. I'm 40 years old, so I understand it. Um, but even I, the I think the distinction. The people who are older, who old boxers hate MMA. <laughs> like, and that's John McCain is the greatest example who called it human cockfighting and was responsible for getting the sport banned in 47 states, uh-huh. largely. Uh-huh. Um, and then he's, he's changed his tune since then. He now thinks that they've cleaned up their act and it's okay. But it still makes him uncomfortable. And it almost goes to a sense of chivalry or honor. And I think that has to do with striking on the ground. To old boxers, the idea that you would continue the fight to the ground and continue striking there uh, offends their sense of appropriateness, of honor, of what a man does. You knock him down, you let him stand back up, you knock him down again, that's okay. But if you knock him down like Bisbing did, (laughs) or like Hendo did to Bisbing, and then you jump down and hit him while he's on the ground, that's like, that makes them cringe. Well, let me me jump in here. Mm -hmm. The guy you're talking about, um, Dan Henderson yes. uh, against Michael Bisbing. Dan Henderson knocked him out on the feet. Bisbing fell down. His head bounces off the canvas. Hendo, as he's known, literally goes airborne and <laughs> and sinks in a right hand, a, a mammoth right hand, to a man who looked to me to be unconscious. Right. And honestly, that makes me queasy because, I mean, serious damage can happen after you're you're already concussed. You know? Yes. I, 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 that one is, it, and that's why I brought it up because that's the most. Everyone who thinks about that thinks yeah. about that moment. Yeah. Um, the one question, of course, is um, sometimes the guy goes down, and if you don't hit him again, he gets back up and might finish you. Um, so, and it's not against the rules until the referee start, stops it. So the question is, in that fraction of a second, um, should he have stopped himself? And oftentimes the fighter will. But that one, I, I, that's that's definitely up for debate. Um, I personally, because I came from a stand-up striking background, that was the hardest thing for me to adjust to, mm-hmm. was uh, when I would get in the ring and be on top of somebody and throwing punches, I didn't want to do it. And when someone was doing it to me, I would panic. I was like, what are you doing? Let me back up. <laughs> like, why? Let me, what are you doing? Um, and I think it's just, it really is um, familiarity. And as people become more familiar with the sport, uh, that queasiness goes away if they like combat sports. Some people never will. But the ones who do, eventually you see it and you get used to it, and it's just that's just part of you fight standing up, you fight on the ground. You strike standing up, you strike on the ground. But, of course, there are, there are moments like that where um, we can argue. We can, I, think, I think he probably shouldn't have jumped up in the air <laughs> like Superman and kind of done a pro-wrestling arm shiver slam on him when it looked like he was out, but you know, in that fraction of a second, it's hard to judge an, uh, an athlete when he's all pumped up and ready to go. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about long-term implications. We, we, sure. We're learning more about concussions all the time, and it turns out that the brain doesn't really like to be smacked against the inside of the skull. You know? <laughs> yes, uh, it does. It, it frowns <laughs> on it. Uh, <laughs> but it it's, it's one of those things where uh, I guess the argument I would make for people is like, if we agree, we can agree, somebody can take the position, no concussions, all concussions are bad, and so we shouldn't have any contact, mm-hmm, combat mm-hmm. or football or otherwise, and we basketball is fine, baseball is fine. We could have sports without them, but if we accept that there is going to be contact, then the best thing is to try to regulate it so that it's contained, but also accept that there are long-term implications. Well, well Matt, we could say that the, the guys who step into the cage are are well aware of the risks and they and they've chosen to take those risks and they're adults and they love what they do in fact a lot of them it's really hard to get them to retire even though they're getting consistently beaten they love it so much right but here's another question what about those of us who just warm the seats right you know who aren't taking any risks at all and are right. and are getting off on sometimes there are people out there definitely getting off on seeing somebody beaten up Sure. So I think a good portion are. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. Let's not let's not mince words. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 
I've been in the stands where guys who don't know anything about <laughs> uh, the intricacies of the jujitsu technique are lost on them. They're they're screaming, punch him in the face, punch him in the face. Exactly, and 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 all that technique and all, and it really is a highly technical um, uh, sport. It's amazingly mm. complicated. Uh, I mean, it's it's more complicated than boxing by Wait. a factor of three or four because of all the different kinds of attack that are allowed. Um, so it's a real chess match on top of involving uh, some brutal violence. But what about those ones who are there for out of bloodlust? Is there something unhealthy about that relationship? Uh, you know, I, I, I think in many ways you could make the counter-argument as they get that out, like they have that moment where they see a contained version of it, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they, they get that sort of charge, and then they go off. And so the, and the question, obviously, it comes up with everything, like violent video games or you know, violent anything where people worry that if you, violent movies, if you watch too many violent movies, will you become a serial killer? <laughs> and so we, we have this continual debate in our society where we're trying to, it's the comment mommy effect. It's like, don't, you shouldn't see that. It will, it will make you think bad thoughts and give you nightmares. Um, I, I generally think that our, our culture is to the point and we have enough of these things going on that if it's well-regulated, well-sanctioned, and the athletes are volunteering to do it, um, and no one, very on the rarest occasion, anybody dies. It's just some blood here and broken bones most of the time. I think it's okay, but there there are people who vehemently disagree with me and say it it must be banned. But from where I stand, I, it doesn't bother me that a couple guys only want to see people get punched in the face. I kind of enjoy it too. Um, I just like the technical aspects as well. Well, speaking of you, I want to get back to your story. Um, mm. And after. Um how many years of training was it? Two years building up two, to your... two, two years to the to the fight, um, right? Which was frustrating to my publisher because I was supposed to get a, the whole book done in eighteen months. So, <laughs> but the book has to include the fight. I mean, the fight is where, where the story's got a climax. So you had uh, an amateur bout after training in Las Vegas. Yep. There, there's an amateur uh, fight promoter there called Tough Enough, and they put on a real show. Um, and uh, so you did it. And uh, let's just listen to a, a little tape here. Introducing first, he'll be fighting out of the red corner into the ring this evening wearing the uh, black trunks and he's representing Extreme Couture. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Matt Pauley. All right, Matt, this, this tape comes from actually a YouTube video that was taken of your amateur bout, your payday, you know. This is the thing that's going to make your book mm -hmm. sell. Describe that moment and how you felt. Before the fight started, I was extremely nervous in the back room. Uh, lots of things were going on. I described the book like at, at the sixth fight, I was the 13th. They came in and suddenly said, you're not allowed to have contact lenses uh, because somebody got hit in the eye and his contact had scraped his eyeball. Uh, and I wore contacts. They hadn't told us before. I can't see without them. So uh, there had to be some exception. The rule that was worked out through a back channel. So I was nervous about all these things. And then suddenly, as I was walking out, I was walking out actually with Randy Couture, who very generously agreed to walk out with me, my coach Joey Varner, and Robert Drysdale, who is one of the world's best jiu-jitsu artists. And so I'm looking around at these guys, these incredible like heroes of mine, walking in my corner to take me out there, and it just struck me as absurd. <laughs> Somehow or other, I'd gotten, I started nowhere, and I'd gotten to this point. And I asked Randy, you know, do you have any advice? And he said, just do what you're doing. This should be your party. You've done all the hard work. This is a celebration. So as I walked out, um, uh, just a real intensity I've never felt before came over me. And it was this complete singular focus as if there was nobody in the world but me and my opponent, David Sexton, uh, standing in that ring. I couldn't even hear. It was like 2,000 people. I couldn't hear anybody in the crowd. Um, and by the way, he is a, an amateur with a good deal less experience than you, but on the other hand, he was younger, and uh, I don't know if he was fitter, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, was, we, were definitely, we definitely both needed to cut a few more pounds. But <laughs> Neither of you uh, would be mistaken physically for a UFC fighter, i got to say. No, that's, I, I, I'll give you that. Well, Roy Nelson, maybe. <laughs> Roy Nelson, no, you're, you have a little baby fat on you. Roy Nelson is, has a gigantic belly. No way. Um, let's, let's listen to a little more of this. But how about the uh, New York or the Washington Post writer putting a book together on the New York Times bestseller list in there? That's a great story. I'm not going to lie to you. 
This guy's a writer for the Washington Post. He's wrote a book that's on the New York Times bestsellers list. And he's now inside the Tough Enough ring touching glove. And, <laughs> and coincidentally, he's... The announcers there, they're, they're really having a good time with your story. That was you they were talking about, the, the best-selling writer. Yeah, I think the promoters um, had heard about this, and I thought that this was an angle um, for the media that was, the local media that was covering the Las Vegas Sun and the Las Vegas uh, Review Journal. In an amateur match, there were 25 matches. <laughs> and so if you're, if you're doing one after another, anything that's unique sticks out to you. And also, uh, I think what was interesting to me about listening to the announcers is at first they thought it was kind of a stunt. Um, just this writer who jumps in the ring and wants to show it, and that I didn't know anything. They right. had no idea that I'd spent two years training and that I had the background at the Shaolin Temple. So at first, I think they thought it was kind of a joke, basically. Well, well you persuaded them otherwise, and about um, you know a minute or so into the first round, mm. here, here's the kinds of things they were saying. Oh, that jab's insane. He really does have a, a nice jab, and it's straight to the point. It's touching the chin, the right hand, and the left. I think that Sexton felt that left just now. You know what? Even though... Paulie Paul moving away from that right. <laughs> he is moving. He's, look, he's just leaning. He's got a little Matrix in him here. Little Neo. His chin is way up in the sky, but he's not getting hit by anything. So, um, I've, seen, I've seen this fight, obviously, and... Uh, I, I didn't know what to expect. I actually watched it before I read your book. I, mm. I, I had your book, but I hadn't yet read it. But I looked you up, and whoa, there it is. And it strikes me, uh, no pun intended, mm -hmm. that, yeah, you know, as scared as you might have been, as over the hill as you might have been, 38 years old, and uh, as inexperienced uh, at MMA, your your technique was, was pretty solid. I mean, it, it's like uh, all that training actually worked. <laughs> Gosh darn it, it really did. Um, I, I, yeah, all credit to my trainers. Uh, just a little bit to me for sticking it out, but they really whipped me into shape. Um, and, and to the Shaolin monks who, who laid the foundation. But it was, it was nice to be able to get out there and show uh, what I was good at, which is striking and kickboxing. And fortunately, it didn't go to the ground, because I don't think either of us were particularly versed in the ground game. But uh, it was it was an amazing experience to be able to get out there and show what the two years of work I put in and uh, have a chance to showcase it. And afterwards, it's amazing having done it. I felt a real uh, thankfulness to my opponent for getting in there with me for his first fight uh, against somebody who knew he knew had studied the Shaolin Temple and uh, giving his all for it too. So. Yeah, it, it, it turned. It, we're definitely amateurs. <laughs> I don't think Dana White's going to be calling me up and offering me a contract uh, based on that performance. But uh, it did have something to it. The match definitely had um, some drama to it. I mean, you you were very good at keeping your distance, avoiding his punches mostly, uh, mm -hmm. using using your jab and mixing it up with some kicks and stuff like that. But uh, then there came this moment, and uh, listen to this, and then tell us what happened here. Mm -hmm. Oh, he takes a, oh, he a takes right a hand and looks at the referee like, did you hit me? <laughs> he looks over the corner like, uh, all right, so... Uh, Was that you that Paul hit me or that it? Around, looking for his corner. <laughs> <laughs> that hurts just hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were hit, apparently, and uh, you looked kind of dazed, and you, you didn't even immediately find your corner when the round ended. Oh, no, absolutely. I had never been hit quite that hard before. Uh, and it's the punches you don't see that hit you. But previously, he'd knocked out a contact out of my left eye, so I couldn't see it. My peripheral vision was gone, oh, uh, which, is, which is no excuse. You're still supposed to be able to be aware of anything. But he threw a really brilliant uh, right hook. That was his big, that was his money punch, his hendo punch. Um, and he threw this right hook and clipped me right on the button exactly the knockout point and my head twisted and the brain rattled around inside and what happened my subjective experience was the lights in the arena just went off like somebody hit a switch i couldn't see anything and i heard the bell ring and i reached out my hands and i had i couldn't see my corner and so i thought i panicked i was like i'm gonna go wander around this ring and not see my corner i don't even remember how i got back to my corner and the light slowly came back on, and I, I could see Joey was yelling, my coach, yelling at me, but I couldn't hear him. 
And it wasn't until 30 seconds into the minute break that I could see and hear clearly again. The cobwebs got brushed out of my brain. As the old expression goes, he, he actually knocked your lights out. He did. He knocked the lights out literally, and I was still standing. Uh, and in the second round, I don't know if we'll get to that, but... Yes, we he, will. In fact, I, I wanted to please. play a little bit of that. Sure. You suffered that moment uh, when you might have gone down. It might have been all over for you, but saved by the bell, I guess. Um, and then uh, the tables turned again. And uh, let's listen to what the announcers are saying in the second round. Okay. Look at the face of Sexton. He is stunned. How did he get hit, he's thinking. It, how many guys am I fighting out there? Who is out here? Is he is he shape shifting? He's using the Buddhist temple. I can't even see him. The speed in which the jab is coming out by Matt Polly. He might write about how the referee took cheap shot at him. <laughs> oh, both look at the misses. movement. Look at the movement by by Matt Nino Polly. This is beautiful. Okay, these guys are obviously having a nice laugh um, and, and exaggerating a little bit, but now, of course, they're, re they're still referring to you as the Neo character from The Matrix. Um, <laughs> I know. But he's screwing up the name. He's calling you Nino now. <laughs> exactly. No, I thought, at that point, I think they might have been a little tipsy. Um, <laughs> but I also thought I should put them on the payroll. They were doing such a great job of, of revving me up and making me seem better than I was. I know. I felt sorry for the other guy. You've got the celebrities in your corner. You're getting all the you know the props from the, the announcers. Um, and the other guy's just this anonymous schlub, practically. <laughs> I know. I, felt, I did, too. I felt a little bad for him because he's young. This, he's impressionable. Um, he, he got the bad end of the stick getting put against me, but... Um, he did. He put again a good performance, and I, I honestly think that the, uh, the the announcers identified partly just because they're about the same age <laughs> as I am. So, so what happened then? By the end of the the second round, um, when the second round ended, um, your opponent David Sexton did not uh, stand up for the third round. He threw in the towel. Yeah, uh, I didn't realize that at the time. Uh, the first round, he clipped me pretty good. And it was it was back and forth, and he might have even on the scorecards. It's hard to tell me just me objectively watching it <clears throat> who won. But in the second round, I kind of turned the tables. I hit him a couple times, and there was one where I saw the look on his face. I could tell he didn't want to be in the ring anymore. And I, towards the end of the round, I managed to return the favor he'd given to me and clip him on the chin. He actually turned his back, and at that moment, I thought he's done. He doesn't want to be in the ring anymore. And so I kind of leaned over him to try to hit him a couple more times so the ref would stop the match. And then the bell rang. <clears throat> they took him over to his corner, and uh, the referee looked and put a pen light in his eyes, and it wasn't tracking. Uh, and they stopped the fight. By which you mean he had been hit hard enough that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't functioning at full capacity. Yeah, he, he didn't know where he was. He, right. was. he was basically out on his feet. Yeah. So they they put him on a stretcher and took him to get an MRI, and very fortunately there was no permanent damage, um, which would have made me feel terrible. Uh, so I was I was very happy that it turned out he was okay afterwards, and he can go on and do whatever else he wants to do. Uh, well, that, this is one of the weird things, though, isn't it? I mean, perfectly nice guy like you, and we'll, we'll assume he's a perfectly nice guy too. Don't know each other, um, have nothing against each other, mm. uh, but here you are hammering each other's heads and, and maybe hurting each other. Yes, exactly. It, it, it's one of the contradictions of the sport. Um, but within that context, it makes perfect sense. I want to win, and the only way to do that is to hit him <laughs> or take him down and choke him out, and he wants to win, and that's the way you win. Uh, so the goal is to win, not to hurt, but hurt is the means to the end. Um, and that's what, to me, combat sports are really about. Uh, there are some guys who just like to hurt, but really... Uh, I think he and I were both nice guys, and that's what we wanted to do. Um, and I, I enjoy it, and I, it makes perfect sense to me, but I do know that there are people who, who look at that, and they're like, why would you want to do that? Let's, let's go to the very end of your, your fight. Please, please. Ladies and gentlemen, at the end of the second round, the blue corner retires. The winner by TKO victory, Matt Pauley! I see people standing for the great Polly. I think that he'll be back. He has to be back. 
That's one of the great performances we've seen, and you may read about it. I can't wait for the sequel. A wonderful fight, wonderful fight. <laughs> oh, Matt, who could ask for more? So are they, are they right? Will Polly be back? No. <laughs> when I, 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 as I describe in the book, I called up my parents, and my mother was crying, and she was like, don't you ever do this to me again? Uh, and my wife basically looked at me and was it was like, uh, "You're dumb enough as it is. <laughs> we don't, I don't need you any dumber than you are already." So uh, I retired. Um, I'm happily retired for the moment. Uh, but you know, I have to say the the thrill. I can see why fighters get addicted to it because it's a high like no other. Having won a fight, been in there, the intensity, everybody cheering, the crowd, and you know, just the primal barbarian you know knock your opponent down afterwards it's just you're walking i felt like i wasn't actually touching the ground as i walked out of the ring so i can i can see why fighters they just can't give it up um but for me being 40 it's not like i have a career ahead of me that i'm giving up no one's got millions of dollars on the table waiting for me to fight again so i don't have those kind of temptations that someone like a chuck liddell had when he should have retired a couple fights earlier than he did um, but no, no, definitely not. Well, Matt, uh, thanks for risking it all for the sake of a very entertaining book. And thanks again for being on the show. Well, thank you, Robert, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Matthew Polly is the author of American Shaolin and his most recent book, Tapped Out, Rear Naked Chokes, The Octagon and the Last Emperor, an Odyssey in Mixed Martial Arts. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio KUSB. I'm Robert Polly, and this Polly will be back next week, Sunday at noon, right here on KUSP.